who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. On this episode, we're joined by Tony Mugavera. Tony is the co-founder and CEO of RAD, a consumer streaming platform delivering live and on-demand esports, music, comedy, and sports. Here's host and Stanford lecturer, Emily Ma. Let me kickstart with a question to you. Um, I, I know that you've spent decades in the AR and VR space, and, and right now you are running a company that started in 2015. Um, maybe you could take us through the journey of how you found yourself in immersive technologies way before it was cool. Yeah, thank you for having me, by the way. That was an amazing intro and uh, you know, a better pitch than I give, I think. So uh, I certainly appreciate that. Uh, yeah, and, and I, I think you know, my, my first uh, experience, real experience with immersive VR was at Wired NetFest in, in New York, uh, you know, in like the mid 2000s. There was a big uh, like mouse wheel that you had to get in and put a VR headset on and it was, you know, you run around in the mouse wheel and it was super clunky. And uh, it was $300,000 to install in your house and, and it blew me away. Um, but, you know, at that time, I didn't think that that was anything in reach for myself. Um, and but I had been building a career in video streaming and and uh, from like 2004, 2005. And so when VR started to make its way into the mainstream a little bit more, the mainstream consciousness anyway, as a, as a Kickstarter from Oculus, um, I perked up and said, hey, you know, my experience in distributing content uh there's probably going to be a need for that in the vr space and when i started playing around with the the kickstarter <clears throat> i got a rift delivered and and fell in with it and pretty much immediately started building a dedicated platform for it and me and a couple co-founders and so we leaned super hard into it and and i you know the industry started to explode with interest and investment and uh, resources flowing in, new content being created, hardware partners developing, all the way up to the biggest tech companies out there. And so, you know, we we knew that there was something there and that somebody needed to figure it out. So uh, and we were passionate about it and and so we leaned we leaned into it. And yeah, that's how we got started. That's that's amazing, actually. So maybe you could share a little bit more about uh, if I double click on what you just said. You know, maybe you could share a little bit more about how you got Little Star started because I know that AR and VR and mixed reality have had lots of ups and downs. And so, you know, mm -hmm. you have mentioned in numerous interviews uh, that you feel like there's a critical mass coming together now. It's maturing. And so, you know, as what were some of the signals that you saw, more of the concrete signals that you were seeing out in the market and with users, with technology that gave you the confidence yeah. to get Little Star going in 2015? And where, where is that now? Yeah. yeah. I think it's it's a lot different now. I think the reality is setting in now. Uh, you know, kind of uh, the you know, the, I think partner hype cycle has a good dual representation of it. There's you have an overwhelming amount of interest, and then as things start to die down a little bit, you hump it out, and they really start to build. And the hard work begins of building uh, the actual platforms and the businesses that come out of that. And so 
you know, when we, when we leaned into it initially, we were the only dedicated distributor of 360 video content. And that meant that all the major movie studios were coming to us and saying, we're experimenting with this. You know, we have alien VR or, you know, Neil Geographic was touring Yellowstone or, you know, swimming with sharks on discovery. These were all two or three minute clips. Like YouTube couldn't support it. Facebook didn't even support it yet. They hadn't even fired Oculus. And so we, we were the only place to, to do that. And as that started to flow, the content started to flow to us. Uh, in parallel, the hardware companies that were building these devices perked up and said, okay, well, we were building these devices, but we need companies that are going to put content on these devices for us to sell it to consumers. And so we quickly started forming partnerships with Sony and Google and Oculus and HTC. And we were launch partners on all the devices globally. And, and so, and we were building a direct consumer application and had content coming from big recognizable names, working with the technology companies that were building the hardware. And then us as a distributor building a direct to consumer application started to find ourselves at this intersection of trust where you know, the content companies needed us, the hardware companies needed us. And so it, it started to build from there. And obviously, you know, 2015, 2016, 2017, there was a lot of investment dollars flowing into the space. So we were able to raise capital in that time based on VR pretty in a pretty straightforward fashion. Um, you know, a lot of interest in it and people were making bets. And as things started to, to cool off a little bit, which I think everybody can see, uh, you know, there's really only a couple plays in the VR space. You know, Apple's been kind of threatening they're going to do something, but they haven't pulled the trigger yet. They're still very mobile AR based. And, uh, you know, Facebook and Oculus just kind of turned into its own beast, but they're continuing to lean into it. Uh, so, you know, I think that could be partially ego driven, but it's also like, we're thankful that they're continuing to lift the market. And, uh, and Sony still has a business with the PlayStation VR. So as we saw the shift and starting to read the tea leaves a little bit on where VR and AR were going, I just think, okay, let's not throw away all of this trust and these relationships and all of this technology that we built, but maybe start to zoom out, expand our a little bit to capture more of the customer, more of the content customer, more of the flagship devices on the hardware side, TVs, game consoles, things like that. So still remain innovative and still be a partner to these people, but adjust to what was happening in the industry. And that's kind of what gets us to where we are today with with the platform. You know, Tony, what strikes me in your description of firstly being agile and pivoting and then Secondly, building relationships of trust and partnering. You've created this incredible ecosystem, this web, where you're really at the center of it. So with that, uh, and for those of us who are not as well versed in, in the media distribution world, how does RAD's business model work with all of di these yeah. different stakeholders involved? Yeah, well, I think initially we, we kept everything free because you know, that's a lot of times early consumer venture backed businesses remain free to capture market share and then they figure a business model out later. Um, sometimes that works great. Other times that's not the right path. And so, 
you know, we, we were able to build a good audience early in, in the VR space. Um, but as, as the market started to shift and content started to, to dry up and people weren't making VR movies necessarily, like there was really more attention to games. Um, we started to have to think, okay, well, what, what's the actual model here? And we can keep some of it free, but start to introduce subscription service and start to bring in not only, you know, some of these, some of these VR films are 20 minutes long and, uh, you know, really well-produced 8K, 360 degrees, spatial audio, multiple languages. But there's, you know, substantial piece content that are worth paying for. There's just not a lot of it. <laughs> and so as we started to introduce more traditional content alongside that with like, for example, WWE, um, they created a bunch of 360 degree video, but then they also created a bunch of traditional video. I mean, everybody knows WWE, they have WrestleMania. Um, and then we even experimented with them with uh, AR holograms that we tapped in part with saw using volumetric video. And so we had, we did it. Our content deal with WWE was 360 video, traditional video and holograms, <laughs> which is like a content deal that nobody's doing. <laughs> um, and I think people are willing to experiment with, but it puts us in this unique position as, from a business model perspective to say, we can introduce people to these things for free and give them a taste of it. Then, do some of the harder, more expensive things. And, you know, even from a content perspective, even traditional content can be expensive. Um, put some of those things behind an actual subscription that start to get the flywheel going a little bit. It breaks the chicken and egg of, of uh, you know, we're not making any money on the content, so we can't spend any money on content. And that means we're not going to be able to make any money on the content. It's like, so we were able to break out of that dynamic about you know 18 months ago and it's it started to roll now as a freemium you know very spotify for for uh for tv kind of model amazing amazing you know again as you speak i i'm i admire you so much for being able to sort of manage all of these moving pieces whether it's your partners developing new technologies your you know content providers creating new content and wanting to work with you in multiple different ways and one thing that you said to me while we were planning this conversation is you know a skill set that you have to have is to be able to figure out which opportunity to pursue because as a, as a as a company as a startup as a ceo you have to choose where you put your resources your resources aren't completely unlimited you can't go after every single opportunity right how do you choose given that you are building relationships of trust with your partners given that you're trying to carve out an area for your company how do you how do you think about making trade-offs mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we we always try to look back at our core DNA, which is, um, you know, where we started was taking things that were really hard to package up and get to consumers in the form of different, you know, content bundles, whatever it is, um, doing that as as a as an, as an innovation partner to hardware companies and the content companies is part of our DNA. And that's, that's what has um, provided value to us as a company. And it's, it creates differentiators in the consumer market for us. 
to do things that are ahead of everybody else. Because like, how do you compete with Netflix and they're spending billions of dollars on, on the, you know, content and we just can't compete with that. So, you know, I think in terms of picking we're, how we're thinking about what we're working on, it always helps for us to go back to say, you know, does this line up with our core DNA where we've created value? And, you know, that doesn't mean that we can't shift the business, but still point back to DNA. So, you know, looking at VR, AR only, that market is too small, particularly for, I mean, it's, it's growing, but it's still too small for, you know, like venture outcomes, right? And a handful of companies have been acquired. Lots of companies have just failed and <laughs> been shut down. And the companies that have been nimble and, and shifted kind of how they think about what they're doing, the, they've survived and, and thrived. And so we, I think, tried to listen to what we, what we were built on and our principles, but then, you know, still honor those relationships that we had with the content companies and other companies. So now we can go back and instead of Google Daydream VR, it's talking to Android TV, which is a flat device. And they're saying, hey, we have Google Voice Assistant that we want you guys to do some interesting things with. You did some really cool stuff with VR. Can you, can you help on making TVs more immersive? Yes, that fits our core DNA. We can get a device, you know, a year in advance, work on uh, SDKs that are undocumented and our engineers can figure it out and work back and forth with their engineers behind the scenes. And, and that's allowed us to, it's provided enough of a guidepost for us to say, this is what we're good at. <laughs> and as opportunities are coming our way, you know, some of them sound interesting, but then we say, well, this may be distracting. So maybe we, maybe we shouldn't do this because it's not core of what we're at. And so there's been some potentially short-term lucrative deals that we've had to pass up because it would have turned us into a production company or an agency as opposed to um, a technology company building uh, an engine for doing, you know, very advanced distribution of content. <laughs> So, yeah. Very powerful. You know, what this reminds me of is as a startup, uh, thinking about company culture, company values, the company DNA, and making that very explicit is actually really, really important. It's in some ways even more important than building a, you know, a technology that is defensible because that allows you to make these trade-offs in a thoughtful manner. And you have to stand for something, otherwise you're going to fall for everything. And so, you know, I, I, mm -hmm. I really appreciate you making that very, very clear to our students today uh, mm -hmm. because many of them have a tech background and, and love racing to you know, solving a tech problem. But yet the culture, the DNA, <laughs> the values are so, so critical. So it's been quite the year, if I might shift a little bit. And, you know, with, with your core DNA in mind, um, COVID brought a lot of change uh, to, I mean, all of our lives. And so could you tell us maybe a little bit more about um, how RAD has experienced COVID and how your community has shifted, your partnerships have shifted, how you've shifted during these sort of unprecedented times in the past 12 months? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we, um, when we, we first started being the company and being VR centric, we had, we had immersive technologies as, um, 
a way to bring people to the platform and they are able to have fun and do cool things. And that was a real differentiator for us. There was nobody else doing it at the time. And that changed, that changed as the years went on. But at the beginning, that was a real differentiator for us. And so when we started looking at, you know, as, as COVID started to take hold and people were at home more often, we actually saw a rise in the amount of uh, VR use in our apps because people were buying VR headsets and I think they wanted to escape reality. Um, but since we had already kind of expanded into more traditional video content um, and even supporting live streaming is, is so we got, we had a, a number of our, of our partners coming to us. We have a bunch of music on the platform. And, and so a number of those partners came to us and said, can you support live streaming music events? And, you know, we said, absolutely. Yes. And, so we started to put together this combination of, you know, if you just had a PlayStation um, or a TV or a, a phone, you could watch the live stream on the phone. And if you had a VR headset, then we created these like animated VR environments that, you know, we did electric daisy carnival and there was like psychedelic planets flying around. And, um, and so, you know, there was a, there was still kind of this bringing back, to the room where started because we did throw all of that technology away, but we broadened the scope out of, you know, doing charity live streams and huge electronic music festivals, and, you know, and allowing people to chat. We, we introduced this watch party capability that allowed people to chat around the content. And that was all being like, okay, these people are at home. They need to connect with their friends. They're trying to escape reality. What tools do we have at our fingertips? to make that better. And so that's what we did. Amazing, amazing. I think you also mentioned uh, people want to meditate together. Is that right? Do you, like all these things that- um, Yeah, we have, there, there's, there's a number of different use cases. I mean, we've done like, we've had like ASMR in VR, you know, we've done like yoga holograms. <laughs> Um, yeah, that show you how to do the proper form and you can, you know, put the instructor in your living room. So that's going to be coming out in, uh, in next month. So, um, yeah, so, so there's, there's like those kinds of, those kinds of things we, we looked at, um, you know, there's, there's this, uh, this guy who we've worked with who basically does like four minutes of you sitting on the beach in Costa Rica in VR and it's just beach and waves and, you know, you relaxing. And, and so, you know, that's part of the premium bundle that we have. And it's like, if you want to go relax on the beach in VR, you totally can. So yeah, there's been some interesting use cases that have, have come out of it and how we thought about the, the effect that COVID has had on people. From a direct to consumer perspective, there's been lift on our, on our business, which has been nice, but you know, I, I always remind the team that, you know, we're so lucky to be in a position to see any kind of lift. And so what can we do to honor that? And so we're not, we're not, that's not lost on us for sure. <laughs> it's so humble, so humble for you to say. So with COVID, I'm actually curious now that you've seen this lift, now that you've seen people sort of relax their notions of what an experience needs to be. Um, I'm still kind of stuck on the yoga hologram one. That's very interesting to me. Um, do you, are you more excited about the future of, of, of 
this the space as a result did, did do you think like covid actually like accelerated adoption do you think we're in a better place as a result of this the changes that have happened yes yes um yeah i mean i think it kind of accelerated everything uh has to do with you being at home and engaging in technology i mean it's zoom is a prime example um you know you've seen that like Peloton explode and, you know, the mirror to work out at home and things like that. So there's, there's going to be some permanent shift. It might be 20% of the world has some kind of a permanent shift in their lifestyle. Maybe once everybody's vaccinated, it goes back to normal, but, um, you know, arguably I think it will change behavior, consumer behavior, and it did change consumer behavior more rapidly, which is one of the most difficult things to change. It's why VR had a really hard time getting out there. And even our on mobile phones is cool and gimmicky, but you know, your arms get tired after holding your phone up and moving it around, like your shoulders get tired. That's not a human behavior. We, you know, we've, we've, we've optimized our, our, our experience to a game controller and all we have to do is move our fingers about that much. And that's esports. That's sports now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta have fast fingers. <laughs> so, humans humans are lazy. Humans are lazy. So, you know, like for, for people to put on a VR headset and move around or, you know, to do, you know, anything and really substantially and change human behavior, that's a really hard thing to do. We ran headlong into that wall. And, and I think the industry did also, it's, it's a tough thing to change consumer behavior. And I think, you know, COVID rapidly changed consumer behavior, which is something that's almost impossible You have to have a forcing function to really change human behavior. If you just let it happen, it'll tend to laziness. <laughs> I, I love your comment that humans are lazy, fundamentally lazy. So just default to that. <laughs> That's a good thing. That's a good thing. You know, like the best engineers are lazy engineers. They're like, I don't want to ever solve this problem again. I'm solving it once. <laughs> here, here. Well, I'm going to have a few more questions for the next 10 minutes or so. And I do want to hand it over to the students to ask many, many questions. I want to pivot over to your extensive experience as an entrepreneur uh, over the course of many, many, many successful companies. You spent some time building a company to help other startups uh, galvanized. You're, you were a venture capitalist. Um, I, I was curious how you decided to make that shift. You know, you went from, you know, being an entrepreneur to being more of a venture capitalist. Um, that's one shift. And then, and then you shifted back. Could you tell us a little bit more about that chapter of your, of your career? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I'd like to get my hands dirty and build. And uh, I think I've, I also uh, enjoy, you know, sh teaching things that I've learned to other people so that they don't have to make the same mistakes. And, uh, you know, even when I was at SMU, I was a teaching assistant there. And, um, you know, even substitute was well, a substitute teacher uh, for like kindergartners when I even started working professionally as an engineer. So, um, you know, I've always kind of had that streak in me and, and, but always like to build things. So through, through entrepreneurship, I, I was, I found myself going into 
pitch VCs and, um, you know, there's have a story and, um, you know, getting better at that. And, and I think, and I saw, I saw an opportunity having gone through it a little bit myself and banged around and, and, you know, made mistakes that maybe I could be helpful to some of those people to avoid those mistakes. Um, but also, you know, like it's, it's a, it's a relationship game and relationship is, is relationships are almost more valuable than capital. So inserting myself at the center of a community and building relationships with other entrepreneurs and other VCs and, um, you know, doing that more rapidly and, and building that community. Um, I, I thought it felt right at the time. Um, and I'm still, still so thankful that I had that experience. Um, but over time, I got the itch to build something new technology related again and, and operate. And so, you know, it, it just changed from a learning mode. And I'm going to open this, open my mind up to the chapter and try to help people and learn as much as I can myself. But um, then eventually it turned into um, I need to engineer, I need to engineer a new product and get my hands dirty again. And I always joke with my wife that that galvanized was like I, w I went to engineering school so you know computer engineering and i i always joke with my wife that galvanized was like getting paid to get my master's in business you know it's like i i completely flipped out of engineering and just learned about you know how to raise a venture fund you know what it meant to be lps and gps and write checks into companies into seed rounds and a rounds and you know, convertible notes and <laughs> why you would set something up as a C corp versus LLC. And it, all of those things were very rapid fire and very hands-on. And so, um, yeah, it was a great, great learning experience. And I think we were able to help some companies. So I feel good about that, but <laughs> back, back to getting my hands dirty. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. You literally hopped on the bike without knowing how to ride the bike and just like rode the bike when you went and became yeah. AC. Yeah, best way to learn. <laughs> I want to go back to something you said, which actually applies to your time at Galvanize, but also what you're doing with your partnerships uh, yeah. and ecosystem now, which is um, the importance of relationships and how you build them. And, and you clearly are really incredibly skilled at that. And I think, at least for me as an engineer, it took me many, many years to kind of even get like, to like novice level, like what sort of advice do you have to engineering students in building relationships of trust? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, that realization for me came later than I would have liked. And it's something that you can get built in to some degree in, in you know, the Greek system in college and, you know, that you can build relationships in school and but if you're not really proactive about being in, uh, you know, in different networks of people and bouncing ideas off of people as, as fast as you, you know, fast as you possibly can, learning from other people and iterating on ideas with people in real time and having drinks with them, having coffees with them. And that, that's where the richness really comes from and the genuine connections with people comes from. And it, and it stops everything from being transactional and just doing work with them. And, 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 and I've found that a lot in, 
having conversations with CEOs, you know, that there's some, there's some CEOs that are very much like, you know, I'm, I don't have time for this. And I'm very strict about how my, how I spend my time. And, you know, I don't have time to just jump on the phone and just chit chat. And um, that I understand that to some degree, like, like some people try to take this stance of like very busy. So like either you're doing business with me or we're not talking about anything. I try to take a little bit different approach and I think it's very important to have conversations with your peers on a regular basis. They're always going through struggles, you know, that you can always learn from them. And so if, you know, another CEO reaches to me and wants have a conversation and just wants to have a coffee with no agenda, then I have that conversation because we get to form a relationship. And then down the road, then it's like when you call them and you're like, hey, do you know so-and-so? Or, hey, I'm trying to get into this fund or I'm trying to do a partnership with this other CEO. They don't think it's transactional, just helping you because you're friends. And so, you know, those genuine kind of authentic relationships um, are so important. And that's why I say more value capital. You know, if you have, if you have the right relationships, it really, it, doors just start to open, <laughs> you know, instead of on the outside trying to get your way in, it's like you just have a network of people that are all helping each other. And so, yeah, I, I, I feel like that is such an important thing in entrepreneurship to focus on, to be really proactive about that. I was just heads down building when I graduated from, from college, I was just like coding, not thinking about like, Hey, I should be building my network. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, um, I, I like, that's really important piece of the puzzle of entrepreneurship for sure. You know, Tony, they don't have a class in that at, at school. It's, it's very weird, right? We take all these functional topics. We get really good at like mechatronics, really good at like, you know, artificial intelligence, but there's like, it's actually a really important skill to, to be yeah. able to um, gain that social capital over time. And then to also spend it very wisely. And, and you are incredible mm -hmm. at doing that. You had one other piece of advice that I thought was incredibly powerful uh, in another talk that you did uh, for entrepreneurs. You said that one of the most, well, the most important piece of advice uh, for entrepreneurs is to be like water. And I was very touched by that. Could you maybe give a little bit more meat to what you mean by be like water? Yeah, I mean, it's it's just like... Um go it's go with the flow you know path path of resistance it's it's not always it's not always about the least resistance but um it's just uh, flexibility is so important and and that kind of expands into empathy and understanding and you know the the people that you're working with if if something happens and something comes up and it's and it's going to be going to be you know a challenge to have to deal with that's okay. You'll fit, you know, you, you, you'll figure it out and you start to figure it out together. It's not about, you know, who said what and when, and, you know, arguing about all of that. When something comes up, start to, to figure it out and flow around it and lean into it and make it work. And, and so, you know, over it, the last handful of years, the core team of, of Little Stars and, and now as we've kind of transitioned the brand, the brand to Rad, as we go through those challenges and you're in the trenches with people doing, doing really challenging kind of decision-making in the moment, the last thing you want to have happen is for there to be friction. You're all in it together 
And it's okay to disagree and have like productive kind of proactive debates about things, but everybody is understanding of each other's position and suggest things that, you know, if something, everybody's stuck on something, you're suggesting something too. There's, there's ways to flow through any kind of issue that, you know, taking that approach is like, just generally in life. I mean, entrepreneurship, you need that. If you don't have that, everybody blows up and the band breaks up and, you know, the startup falls apart and co-founders leave. And, you know, like you just can't, you can't operate that way. That's, that's just in business. But in life, I mean, if you approach all relationships that way, then like life just seems to get better. It's like, instead of your, instead of everything that you do being contentious, like, we'll figure it out. How bad can it possibly be? <laughs> so, yeah, um, I've, I've tried to take that approach more uh, as, as, you know, things have progressed in the last handful of years in particular, because earlier on, I, I thought that like, you had to like, stay hard and fast to something. And if, you know, you didn't, then you were earlier. And really that's like the counter to what you should do as a, as somebody in, as, a, as an entrepreneur, you should come up with a thesis, test it as fast as you possibly can figure out if you're wrong and go to the thing that's closer to being right. And, and so, you know, that, that mentality is very much like, I'm going to find, I'm going to find the path of least resistance as quickly as possible. And, you know, so that's kind of where that, that mentality comes from. Oh, that's incredible. It's so incredible. Just even you're tying that back to relationships and just life, right? It's it, it sounds like it's much easier to live a happy life by being like water rather than, you know, always being at loggerheads. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm going to kick off the student Q&A. So uh, first question, Sadesh asks, with budding technologies that may take a long time to adopt, how do you temper long-term business versus research goals with short-term goals or business and research goals with short-term goals? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think we had to be realistic about, uh, you know, looking at, looking at creating a new industry, which was essentially, I mean, the VR industry had kind of been around for a long time, but the consumer, modern consumer VR industry was effective creating a new market and not resegmenting an existing market. Um, and so you have to approach it in, in a different way in that, um, you know, you can't just spend all of your money on R&D trying to figure it out. It's like, you have to come up with some kind of a paradigm that has worked in other worlds and bring that into this new innovative thing and and then lay those on top of each other so that even though the new technology is there a familiar model exists so that you know you're not just down in the weeds burning money on R&D <laughs> so you know we we do have a handful of things that we are kind of constantly playing around with in terms of R&D and we do hackathons and, um, you know, our engineers contribute to open source and we play around with things like cryptocurrencies and, you know, so there's, there's all kinds of, uh, you know, R and D type things that we do, but the core business around content distribution and working with hardware partners and content partners 
has largely stayed the same. And it's a similar paradigm to other streaming platforms that exist, but we're just doing innovative things that kind of carve out a white space for us. So it is a delicate balance, but really have to be focused on building an actual business, especially with venture capital. It's so easy to just get lulled into comfort with money in the bank because <laughs> you don't have to build a business. <laughs> Occasionally that works, but not a lot. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. <laughs> All right, next question. Yeah. Uh, maybe in similar vein, how do you build a company that is simultaneously stable in the present market and adaptable for future markets? Yeah, I think that that kind of um, dovetails from the previous answer. It's 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 a little bit of R and D that we have to think. Okay, how are we building for the future, and but not sacrificing the the existing business? And it's a little bit of the innovator's dilemma. If anybody's familiar with that, but um, so many people get caught up in that where they only focus on their existing business and they never focus on the future. And then over time they get disrupted by somebody else who has been thinking about it and they've been focusing on their business, which from a management perspective is a smart thing to do. But a lot of people don't, uh, don't have the innovation component to kind of think to the future. And so, you know, we, I think, try to balance that in a way that allows us to continue to be innovative, but also, realistic about what the core business is and yeah so thank you uh next question a little bit of a, a pivot away which is why did your service rebrand from little star to rad and does it indicate a mm -hmm. pivot or shift from your original vision or problem that your service seeks to resolve yeah i mean i, I think as we start we in in vr it was a, a niche community that we thought was going to be more mass market and rad has uh it's a tie to little star i mean we thought the name came from like radiance and um and there was we were thinking like how does this tie to stars and so the uh the the idea that it's still tied to little star but it was a little bit easier to um, you know, there wasn't any missing letters, uh, simple, it's short, it's easy to remember. Little star is easy to remember, but, um, and then also like, you know, there's a lot of our content partners. They, I think in the VR space, they can get the nuance around little star. It's like, if, if you watch anime, you know, I think American audiences miss a lot of the nuance anime, but like in, in Japan, everybody's like, this is so amazing. Um, you know, it's, it's similar to that. I think Little Star had a lot of nuance to it in that, in, in that VR and AR um, community got that. But the broader content and mass market consumer um, might connect to that as much. And in, in, in fact, you know, when you're dealing with Hollywood, people don't want to be Little Stars. <laughs> they want to be big stars. So, um, you know, we started to think about who our audience was and it's kind of younger millennial, older Gen Z. There's, there's actually the millennials go back to when rad was actually like used a lot in, in, uh, you know, kind of slang and I grew were actually rad. Um, 
but and you know the younger generation gen z is now um also reusing that using rad all the time so it's it's connects to language in a way that connects to you know an older demographic a younger demographic it talks about what we do um it's easy to remember so it is kind of a lot of things culminated into how we were changing the scope to more mass market content and who we were approaching and how we were approaching them so yeah Amazing, amazing, and and it's it's all again. You're being like water. You're adjusting and and reshaping <laughs> as your company evolves. Which is so beautiful. Okay, I don't fully understand what this question is. It's a very long question, so I'm going to read the first. I fully sentence. understand it. I don't even have to okay. read it. I, I know okay. exactly what it's about. Okay, I, I do need to read it so that our YouTube uh, live folks can hear. Yeah, it. can read it. I'm gonna. I think I know what's going on, but I'm not gonna read the whole thing. So the okay. question is: Do you have anything to comment regarding the dispute between independent investors, especially the Wall Street bets people on subreddit, and hedge funds regarding GameStop? And there's lots of stuff going on right now with GameStop, and uh, I'm I'm just gonna hand it to you because I know very little about this topic. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, my my Reddit account is 14 years old. I've been on Reddit for a very long time. And uh, I saw Wall Street bets be born on Reddit and have seen a lot of the conversation that goes on there. And there are some really savvy, there's a lot of like idiots doing a lot of stupid investing, but there's some really smart people on there um, coming up with strategies and diligence around companies that, that they found value in. And so, you know, I've always kind of been, you know, I don't know how best to put it, but somewhat of a an an anarchist or like against against the man to some degree. Like I always fight for the underdog, and uh, I love a good underdog story. Who doesn't? But I, you know, I feel like, um, you know, I I certainly don't fall on the side of defending Wall Street here. Um, I think having communities and retail investors have access to the same things that hedge funds have access to is is critically important for uh how we should be shaping investment in the future and um you know particularly you can look at like ipos for example you know like a retail investor can't participate in an ipo and can't even participate in in the private market before things get to an ipo and you know guess what vcs all, all are pumping that stock time they write the check the the angel check and they they just get to do that in private with their buddies <laughs> that's how that's that like you can look at along the way and and watch when what happens when a lot of these companies ipo you look at their balance sheet and they're losing 200 million dollars a quarter but they've ipo'd and everybody you know what you know who gets you know who buys in retail at the last minute they're holding the bags because all the people, all the, the private, private equity people got in in a way that none of the retail people could get in. And so they pump it all the way to the point of a ridiculousness and then leave, leave retail holding the bag. And, you know, the, the IPO pops right away and then it starts to die and falls off. And the retail people are like, well, I got in at the peak of the IPO and now it's dying, you know, it's lost. 50% of it. Sometimes it goes up, whatever. But the same thing has played out here on Wall Street bets and, and hedge funds. 
it's just been reversed. Retail has figured out how to pump the value because they've identified a strategy that puts the hedge funds holding the bag. <laughs> and so it's genius. I mean, it's genius. And, and the thing about, you see it on CNBC and Bloomberg and they're like, you have these hedge fund managers calling in and call, talking about it's a manipulation. They do the same thing and they've been doing it for years. And you see Ackman go on and talk about everything that he's shorting and how he thinks everything's going to go to zero or he thinks everything's going to go to the moon. They go on and manipulate stock in plain view and leave retail holding the bag. And this moment is basically putting, you know, well, it's the, now the community is like 3 million people because it's been memed like crazy. But uh, Wall Street Bets is basically, it was a small group of people that was community-driven hedge fund strategy. And they identified something that was going to pop and, and did it, you know? And, and now everybody's mad about it. All it did was expose what hedge funds have been doing and private equity has been doing for, year, for decades. And, you know, here we are. I'm on, I'm on the Wall, Wall Street Bets team, you know? Like, and I got in GameStop at 60, you know? Like, I thought that was too late. I was looking at it at 20 and I was like, are these guys serious? Like this thing is going to moon. And um, no, so I took the ride. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Well, let's talk one more question about underdogs because uh, I, I know you want to cheer them on. So for those of us who are in um, uh, BIPOC communities, LGBT, you know, underrepresented uh, groups, uh, what is your advice? This is our last question for this. What is your advice um, in terms of founders in those categories raising capital? Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm, I'm, I'm thankful now that that the world is is waking up to the fact that um, brilliance comes from everywhere and there should never be any, um, you know, any other consideration other than merit and, um, you know, what you're doing. It, it does it have value and is it cool and is it interesting? Can it benefit the world? And, you know, like people are finally waking up at. And so not to, not to say that there hasn't been a struggle and, you know, where, where it's come from, but um, you know, we, even from a content perspective uh, you know, it, it's, we feel like it's important to represent as many perspectives as possible. And um, you know, they're all, they're all, they all have levels of importance and everybody, no matter who they are has um you know, good and bad views on things. You can people from, from every group and say, you know, there are great things and there are bad things. And so, you know, we, we just try to identify the good from, you know, as our own company. But, you know, if you look out in the broader kind of investor community and what's happening, you know, the in, investment in, in um, you know, minorities, women, LGBT, it's, it's, it's all becoming very intentional now. And, and I think that attention is really good. Um, I've always, I, I was just raised, you know, Southern hospitality, <laughs> be good to people, you know, take care of them, they'll take care of you. And so I've never even thought about that being a thing like as a consideration. I'm just like, you're my brother, you're my sister. So like, and you're building something cool, then you should get investment if you're trying to raise it, you know, it should, 
So I've never understood how anybody could have a separate mentality, like a different mentality that like splits people up and says that somebody's more deserving than, um, you know, there's probably some natural tendency of humans to gravitate to things that are like them. And so, you know, that, that's a, an introspective thing that I think people have to look at themselves and say, um, am I doing this right now? Or am I, am I looking at this like the bigger picture? And, and so um, I think, I think there's more opportunities now than ever. And anybody who has any concern that they might not be able to raise capital, go into that room and slam your fist down on the table and tell them why you deserve it. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at eCorner.stanford.edu.